the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. After the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, one Union soldier wrote, What a bloody one-sided battle this was. It was simply murder. We can see when we have a chance. Here we had none. It might seem like the result of the battle was a foregone conclusion, but it need not have been. Chris Makowski and Christopher D. White are historians who have worked for years on the battlefield and have co-written Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, and also a second book, Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, The Battle of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church, May 1863. We'll have one of those authors, Chris Makowski, with us today to talk about both battles of Fredericksburg on Civil War Talk Radio. on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, as always. Uh, it's summertime here in May 18, uh, 18, I'm going back in time, not 18 or 19, but 2013. It's uh, May 2013, and we are, as always, not representing the university uh, but uh, speaking for the individual self, likewise, my guest will do the same. That's what we do every week here on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm overcoming momentary distractions as we get settled in here for the hour-long weekly trip into the 19th century, a most welcome break from the distractions of everyday life. Uh, I hope you find it so. I certainly do. I always enjoy hearing uh, about uh, history as opposed to uh, the things one normally hears about. It has been a particularly uh, crazy week here at East Carolina University and at World Civil War uh, Talk Radio World Headquarters. This week, uh, among other things, 
for the first time, the show lived up to the, the talk radio name in the sense that uh, I find when I listen to talk radio, if I'm on a long drive somewhere, just out of curiosity, put it on the car radio, uh, you hear the craziest things being said. You hear opinions delivered without the slightest factual backing and uh, people roundly denouncing their uh, the opposition in all kinds of un- uncertain, no uncertain terms. Uh, uh, you don't hear a lot of, of civil or, uh, it seems to me, very well-reasoned debate. It's just uh, a kind of uh, a crazy talk situation. And that is, and I got an email of that sort this week for the first time in the, the many years of Civil War talk radio uh, uh, from a, a, a listener so bursting with indignation at my many many flaws and failings, they could hardly contain themselves. Uh, they certainly could not pause long enough to spell correctly or things like that. And I, when I finished reading it, my first thought was to remember that Dear Abby used to uh, regularly print in, in her column that she was convinced students at Yale University had an ongoing competition to send her fake letters that uh, with problems that didn't really exist to see if they could get printed in the newspaper. Now, I've always thought that Dear Abby was delusional uh, to think that college students bothered to read what she was writing, uh, and, and I don't think they would take their time to send fake letters to a newspaper, even 20 or 30 years ago, much less today. But my first thought was that this was a clever listener, or maybe a, uh, an acquaintance of mine, just writing something off the wall to see if I would fall for it. But I decided to fall for it and sent back a, a brief reply correcting some of the factual errors and uh, leaving it at that. Since the person promised never to listen again, I'm not concerned about any follow-up uh, unless he was lying. Uh, so uh, we'll let that go. But it was an interesting uh, experience to uh, to feel like I, I had raised someone's blood pressure just by talking about uh, not even so much the Civil War. Uh, that didn't concern me as much as, as uh, the North Carolina legislature, which I'm not going to talk about today. Uh, it has been, uh, as always, a, uh, a week filled with threats to cut the budget and this and that from the legislature and the administration at ECU, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, instead, we'll talk about the shows coming up. Uh, next week's show is open at this point. It's not clear if I'll be able to do a, a live show next week, but I'm, I'm planning on it, so we'll leave it on the schedule, see if we can get that to fall into place. Then on uh, May 31st, uh, Jonathan Wells from Temple University joins us to talk about uh, his Civil War textbook, A House Divided. On June 7th, Megan Kate Nelson, who is currently at Harvard University, will talk about her uh, environmental, cultural history, ruin, nation, destruction of the American Civil War. Uh, no live show on the 14th, and on the 21st we'll wrap up the 2012-13 season with Jake Borat, a filmmaker who's working on a piece called The Gettysburg Story. He is the son of Gabor Borat, longtime director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College and uh, author of the Gettysburg Gospel and other important books. And hopefully uh, Jake will get his father to join us on the show and the three of us can talk uh, about the Battle of Gettysburg and things in the area. 
You can find out what's going on with all these things from, of course, uh, the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where uh, Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date on what's going on. And you can also donate by pushing the PayPal button when you get there for $25 sent to the show. I'll send you one of the few remaining copies of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And once my personal stash has run out, you'll have to go to Amazon to buy those books, uh, which, you know, you could do that too anyway. Uh, but uh, your donations are always welcome. They are not tax deductible. And uh, that is because I'm not a 501c3. I'm not a charity. I just use your money for whatever purpose I wish. But often to buy books that we'll talk about on the show. That's certainly uh, the case coming up here. Now let me pull back momentarily from the computer. And, well, it's too far away. We'll talk about uh, uh, today's topic, starting with the June 14th, uh, no live show that week, I mentioned. The reason is I will be uh, joining Matterhorn Travel in a Civil War tour. They call it This Hallowed Ground uh, from June 9th through June 16th for one week in Northern Virginia. We'll be tooling around the countryside in a bus like Ken Kesey and his very pranksters uh, visiting uh, Manassas and uh, Antietam and Gettysburg and other places. I'm very much looking forward to this. It will be a, a busman's holiday, literally, a chance to see sites that, uh, well, I guess I've seen them before, but haven't seen in a while, and talk Civil War with an interested bus full of uh, enthusiasts. And we'll also be time away from the uh, the more obnoxious details of administration. So it should be fun, and uh there are still spots available if anyone has a few thousand dollars sitting around in a week of leisure, come and join us. But the serendipity of the program is what strikes me. Today, I talked with the tour organizers and asked them, what uh, what exactly do you need from me? I, I'm happy to do lectures. I can talk about battlefields. I'm no Ed Barse, but I can... You know, give a, a, an acceptable battlefield tour for most of these places, especially, especially if I have time to think about them. And we went over the schedule and looked. You know, Antietam uh, is, is a wonderful place to walk around. At Gettysburg, we're required to have a an LBG a licensed battlefield guide uh, to take the group around, so that'll be nice. The one place where I thought I don't really know my way around that well was Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. I've been there, but don't really know the ins and outs of the battlefield, where to park, what to see. And what would be this week's topic but the Battle of Fredericksburg and the book Simply Murder, the Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862, by Chris Makowski and Christopher D. White. It's part of the Emerging Civil War series uh, published by Savas Beatty, who do many good Civil War topics. And the book uh, that I hold now, uh, which is one of several we'll talk about today, is a very attractive, slim paperback, roughly 150 pages, that is essentially a tour of the Fredericksburg battlefield by someone, by two people who, who know the battlefield extremely well. And it's just what 
the historian ordered. It's exactly what I need to take these folks around in a couple of weeks, and I will sound like I know all about the battle uh, and where to drive it, where to go. But to find out more, I'm going to ask uh, our guest uh, to take us on an audio tour of the battlefield and find out what there is to see and what happened at Fredericksburg, both in December 62 and again in May of 63, uh, with our guest, uh, Chris, Chris Mikowski. Uh, Mr. Mikowski, Dr. Mikowski, are you there? I am, Jerry. What a delightful treat it is for me to spend some time with you today. Thanks for well, having th- me. Thank you very much for being on the show. Um, you and I haven't uh, crossed paths yet, uh, but are you still involved with the Fredericksburg battlefield? Is there any chance you'll be there in June? Um, actually, I will be. I'm sitting in the battlefield right now. Um, the, the park quarters where I will be living this summer is actually right along Lee Drive as part of the battlefield, um, just by, um, by Howerson Hill, which was an artillery position. So I'm really fortunate that I literally get to live on the battlefield that I get to know so well. So it's a real nice treat. Well, we'll we'll have to get this organized. Uh, let me get the right date for you. I'm going to be there uh, 10, 11, 12, I want to say June 13th. That sounds like a Thursday. Oh, yeah. I'll um, definitely be around. Yeah, June. Well, look look for a bus from Matterhorn Travel June thirteenth. Uh, and listeners, if you're in the area, just come hang out with the tour group. I'm sure the tour manager won't mind. You won't get any free food, but uh, uh, come and hear uh, uh, Chris and me talking, and we'll all have a good time. So, well, tell us about your relationship with the battlefield. How is it you get to live there, and what exactly do you do? Yeah, it's um, I've been a, a really very fortunate of mine to be. I'm related to Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park for just one, um, 10 years now, I think. Um, and I started out just as a tourist and sort of got more and more involved and began volunteering and uh, spending a lot of time doing special projects. Once they found out that I wasn't just some kind of schmo, it's like, oh, wait, this guy knows how to edit video and this guy knows how to write things. Um, uh, they started to take a little bit more advantage of that, which was a great treat for me as a as a Civil War enthusiast, to be able to kind of start really rolling up my sleeves and getting involved with projects that help tell these stories. So, well, you know, that that relationship just continued to snowball over the years. I've actually worked here as a seasonal employee, um, which was kind of a fluke because I was finishing up my uh, Ph.D. one semester, and that qualified me for a student hiring program the Park Service had. And at 40 years old, suddenly I get to be a student worker at the, the Park Service. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to bear hat. That's fantastic. Um, but really, it's just been a, a relationship born out of love and loyalty, uh, both to the war and to this park, which has been very, very good to me for many years. Well, so you, uh, I'm looking at the back of your book, and it says you are a professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at St. Bonaventure University. Is that uh, still the case? It sure is. Uh, Bonaventure's in western New York. Um, if you were in Buffalo and you were to drive straight south toward Pennsylvania, just before you crossed the state line, you would trip over Bonaventure. Um, and I've been there for 13 years. And my real focus is I'm a writing professor, and I really focus on helping people write good stories. Uh, and that's what attracted me to the Civil War, because, of course, as you know, the, the Civil War is America's great story, and it's full of all kinds of smaller great stories. So it was naturally something that just my attention gravitated to. 
Well, that that's uh, and the importance of writing in history cannot be overstated. Uh, historians, history students uh, do get a lot of practice in writing, but often it, it's just in the technical sense and getting the citations right and uh, getting the writing to be clear and meaningful, but not not often. Uh, not often enough do they practice writing for its own sake to, to put together a good narrative. So that yeah, is certainly and, something we need. And you know that like the easiest thing in the world is for someone to just stop reading. So if something gets boring or uninteresting or confusing, it's easy to just close that book and put it down. So I think one of the real challenges that, that um, historians face if they want people to read their histories is to get people to keep reading. Um, and that's a bigger challenge than a lot of people really think. Well, this book here is quite easy uh, to read, and I don't mean that it's large print or, or elementary English, but it's very attractive, a lot of illustrations and maps. But it also sets out the story chronologically. Um, and if we start at the beginning, our listeners, when they hear Fredericksburg, uh, almost immediately think of the, the stone wall, uh, the sunken road, Union soldiers being mowed down. Uh, but your your premise here, at least part of, of, of what uh, starts the book, is the idea that it did not have to be that way, that, that Burnside actually had a pretty good idea for a campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and through hindsight, we look at Fredericksburg as this absolute disaster. Um, it was idiotic for him to send men across an open field uphill against this fortified Confederate position. Um, but at the time, Burnside actually had a lot of good reason to think he could win, um, and it was his best chance of success. Uh, and only through that lens of hindsight, when we see how things unraveled on him, can we understand that it was just absolute disaster to happen. So, so how did things start to go wrong, uh, or, or how could they have gone better? Yeah, they started to go wrong as soon as Lincoln said, you've got to go do something right now. Um, because, you know, certainly at that point in the war, Lincoln is, is interfering more than he does later in the war. And so Burnside has tremendous political pressure on him to do something because of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, Lincoln is basically forcing Burnside's hand. And Burnside's got to do something quickly because it's mid-November, the weather's going to turn bad, uh, winter's going to come, it's going to be impossible to move that army. So he's got to do something, and he's got to do something quickly, and he's got to be successful at it. Now, the only way the emancipation has any peace at all is if there's battlefield victory to back it up. So Burnside starts out behind the eight ball. And then as Lincoln continues to prod and Halleck continues to fuss and, and continues to operate at peak inefficiency, um, you know, Burnside has put at serious disadvantage right well, he he knew. Uh, I've always thought Burnside does not get enough credit, at least for the self knowledge that he was not qualified to command this army, and he told Lincoln that, uh, and Lincoln nevertheless appointed him. Uh, but he yeah, he didn't have any choice. There he was. Yeah, and and as you know, being down there in Eastern Carolina, Burnside had some great, um, you know, so he was seen as someone who was capable who was aggressive, who knew how to succeed, who knew how to motivate his men. And so that's why Lincoln turned to him, you know, not just because of seniority. And Burnside, very self-effacing, said, yeah, geez, I don't know, I'm cut out for this. Um, but the, uh, the, the alternative was that Joe Hooker would ascend the command. 
and Burnside and Hooker were political rivals within the Army. And so basically Burnside took it so that it wouldn't go to Hooker. I, I can think of a number of positions I've taken in my life where I thought, well, if I don't do this, they're going to pick someone else, and I may not be great, but these other people are hopeless. Uh, and and so maybe maybe this is Burnside's thinking there. Hopefully mine works out better than his. Uh, <laughs> so he comes up with the idea that we'll go around Lee's flank. Uh, what happens when he gets to Fredericksburg? Why... why the idea is we'll, we'll throw the army across the river, um, it, but it doesn't work out that way. His plan is fantastic. He wants to get to Fredericksburg, jump the river, and then make a mad dash toward Richmond. Um, the reason he wants to target Fredericksburg specifically is because of the transportation system that's here. Um, there's a fantastic rail system that would allow him to supply his army, um, and he's got parallel roads that will allow him to move that army efficiently southward toward Richmond. Um, he knows there are no bridges in Fredericksburg. Uh, the, the Union Army had occupied this area since the spring of 62. Confederates had destroyed the bridges as soon as the occupation began. So he calls ahead to, to Halleck. says, look, I'm going to Fredericksburg. I need bridge material. Send it to me. Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. absolutely. I'm going to step in and, and interrupt here for a minute because that's a, we need to take a short break. But we're going to come back and find out what happens when that bridge material uh, is sent to, to Fredericksburg and what Burnside does with it. We're talking today with Chris Mikowski. He's co-author of Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop, take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chris Makowski, co-author of Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862. We've been talking about the Fredericksburg campaign and Burnside's good intentions. Uh, before we go further, a quick 
shout out to my daughter Caroline who just called from home. She's home from college and is, is home alone this afternoon and has been battling a wasp for the last 45 minutes in our house and just called to let me know she has won. So I'm happy to hear that. Uh, but back to uh, the battles of 1862. Uh, Chris, the, you pointed out that Burnside has a good plan. He's going to cross the river at Fredericksburg. Good place to go. Plenty of transportation facilities. No bridges, so he needs to bring his own. Uh, you know, West Point is an engineering school. This should work out well. Uh, if anything, the Army ought to get some bridges there in a hurry. Oh, you'd think that would be the case. But, um, in fact, Halleck drags his feet, and so he does not issue the orders to have the bridges sent to uh, Burnside in time. In fact, Burnside gets to Fredericksburg on the 17th of November, and that's when Halleck finally sends the orders off to Maryland. Hey, send those bridges down to Fredericksburg. So Burnside's trapped on the northeast side of the river for weeks without bridging, which, of course, then completely loses his uh, element of surprise. He actually gets here and, and steals a march on Robert E. Lee, gets to Fredericksburg, and had he the bridging materials he'd expected, could have gotten across the river quick and, and made his move toward Richmond right away. Instead, he loses that surprise, gets stymied, and things begin to continue to unravel on him. So, finally, the bridge material arrives, and we have some of the most uh, dramatic moments of the war when the, uh, the – now you have to put a bridge across the river, but as you say, Lee already knows now that Burnside's there. Uh, so, you, you have engineers building a bridge under fire. Uh, let me ask both about that incident and also what, what there is to see today of, of, uh, of that episode of the battle. And, and, and a lot, again, here's one of those places where people second-guess Burnside a lot, uh, because uh, just around the bend of the river, north of the city, the river's quite shallow. Um, you could walk across, and there's that famous scene mm. in the movie Gods and Generals where Hancock comes in and says, oh, I saw a cow out in the river, and you could walk across. Why don't we do that? And Burnside poo-poos him away. And, you know, that sort of typifies the attitude people have today about Burnside, like, you know, he was a complete idiot. He should have just walked across the river instead of waiting for these bridges. Uh, but as you know, you know, if you move your army across, you've got to move your supplies and you've got to move your artillery. And wagon wheels don't go so well through the river all the time. And if the river rises or freezes, that's going to create some issues. So the, the bridges are an absolute necessity for Burnside. Um, he can't swing north because the Confederates can easily pivot and block him. And there are actually two river crossings that they could contest. And so... You know, going up river is just not a great option for Burnside at all. Where to go south, the river's wider, it's deeper, it's affected by the tides, so that's not an especially good direction to go either. So Fredericksburg really is his best choice for success, and he's got to do something uh, because of Lucan's orders. So he starts to build these bridges, doesn't get started until December 11th, and Confederates let him go, um, even though... Union engineers think they're being sneaky, and they're, they're building this bridge under the cover of fog before dawn. Uh, Confederates can kind of hear the sounds going on, and they let the engineers get halfway across the river before they ever open fire. Uh, the reason being because they want the engineers to commit to the project. You know, when you're halfway across, you're committed, you know, pulling up and moving. Um, so then begins this back-and-forth firefight as the... Engineers basically are sitting ducks out there in the river, 
as Confederates open fire on them. Goes back and forth for a while, and then finally Union artillery opens up on the city. First time in American history that our military bombards a, a city. And uh, you know, trying to drive those those uh, Mississippi sharpshooters out of the city doesn't work. And the sharpshooters simply hunker down in the basements, hide behind walls, and then when the shelling stops, they get up, and start shooting engineers again. So then. Henry Hunt, who's the commander of the Union Artillery, decides, why don't we put some infantry in some of these pontoon boats and ferry them across the river and try to drive them that way. And so it's going to become the first time in American military history that we've got a riverine crossing under fire. Uh, and then, of course, they are successful getting over there. They establish a beachhead, and then they have to go house to house, street to street, block to block, um, driving these Confederates out of the city. First time in American military history, we've got urban combat. Um, so again, you, you know, you think about Burnside having to rewrite the rules of war as he's trying to execute this plan. He's literally having to rewrite the book as he goes. Um, and so that's so something else that I think uh, you know people. Work it's, a, yeah, none, none of those things. That's very interesting. None of those things had really happened before. When you said no bombardment of a city, I was—I thought of uh, what about the rockets' red glare, Baltimore in 1812. Uh, um, yeah, well, see, it wasn't our military that was doing the bombarding. Ah, we're I, good point. This is the first time we're attacking a city. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah. so the first city bombardment, the first uh, river crossing under fire, uh, the first house-to-house urban fighting. It really is uh, a new thing. And I, I appreciate your point about Burnside making the choice to attack where he did, or build the bridges where he did, as being ultimately the only one militarily practical one, because it is very easy. Uh, I, I'm sure you encounter it with visitors to the battlefield, uh, and we all encounter it in, in what we read, to second-guess uh, Civil War generals and assume that they've made uh, horrible mistakes and you know everybody makes mistakes, but these guys were not were not idiots to get as far as they got. And and Burnside, you know, was not simply ignoring Hancock uh, when he made his decision. And and I think it's a good point to make. Now, again, when we think of the Battle of Fredericksburg, the the image most Civil War students have is the house to house fighting. The and then especially once the, the rebels are cleared out of the city. Uh, the assault up the heights behind the city. But from your book, uh, the bulk of what you describe, where the real action is, is further uh, uh, to the south or southeast, I guess. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, I will give complete credit there to my friend and mentor, Frank O'Reilly. Um, Frank literally wrote the book on the Battle of Fredericksburg for good, detailed, in-depth battle study. Frank O'Reilly's the Fredericksburg campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. Uh, so I'll put a little pitch for my buddy's book there. Uh, the, the definitive battle study of, of Fredericksburg. But I mention that because Frank is the one who actually sort of pieced together this puzzle. Um, because for for a century and a half, people were thinking, okay, we've got these attacks against Marine's Heights and the Stonewall, and how silly that was. Um, but Frank discovered that Burnside had one set of maps he was working with, and his wing commander of the Left Grand Division, General Franklin, was working with a different set of maps. And it's the confusion between these two sets of maps that really set things in motion at the south end of the field 
um, in, in very different ways than, than Burnside had intended. Um, but that's where he actually wanted to launch his main attack. Um, he sends really confusing orders. Um, I actually use his orders in, in the classes I teach as a, an example of, of unclear writing. You know, if you're trying uh-huh. to state your intent, here's what you should not do. <laughs> <laughs> but basically what he wants is for Franklin to launch the bulk of his men against Prospect Hill and then take the Confederate position, cut off their route of retreat down the Telegraph Road south. That would also then capture the Telegraph Road and allow the Union Army to move south. That was his plan all along, was to use that road to go south. Um, But because the orders are confusing, because the routes that Burnside specifies in the orders go to different places on Franklin's map than they do on Burnside's map, uh, Franklin is completely flummoxed. And then, of course did not ask for clarification. You know, this is absolutely um, mediocre leadership at its very most mediocre. Um, so Franklin instead just second-guesses himself, second-guesses what Burnside had told him in person the night before, and he ends up only sending a small portion of his forces against the Confederate position at Prospect Hill. Now, in concert with all of that, you know, as the main attack is supposed to be going on on the south end of the field, Burnside sends these troops against the stone wall at the north end of the field, strictly to hold them in place so that they don't swing around and reinforce troops at the south. You know, so it's really just intended as a diversion. Um, but it takes on this terrible life of its own as the battle unfolds throughout the day. So, and that's the, the attack, the attacks up Marie's Heights toward this impregnable stone wall position that uh, that that are the the iconic moment at Fredericksburg that everybody thinks of uh, the, there's no chance of success. The quote uh, you have at the beginning of your book that I read at the the start of our our talk uh, the soldiers knew there was no chance of succeeding, but you're saying that Burnside knew this too. It wasn't intended to succeed. it was intended to hold the Confederates in place exactly and you know if they happen to break through. It's like icing on the cake. I mean, you know, there are many advantages to breaking through with that position. Um, if you break through and then head south, you can roll up the Confederate line like a blanket um, with only a small force between you and the river to the north. Kind of take care of them later. But basically, you cut the line in half and then roll south. Um, if you think about Confederates using a sunken road as a fortified rifle pit at Antietam, where they were using that position to fend off Union attacks across an open field. Um, you know, we start to see some echoes from that battle here at Fredericksburg. But remember, when the Union Army broke through at Antietam there at the Sunken Road, it was like shooting fish in a barrel because the Confederates really had to go. And so there is some precedent to think that if they had to break through at the Sunken Road in Fredericksburg, as they had at Antietam, the Confederates are trapped with no place to go. And, you know, they had, uh, the Federal Army had overwhelmed a similar position before. And, you know, it doesn't certainly guarantee success, but there is precedent we could look back at. Um, the other thing, too, is you know, a lot of people forget, as you're going uphill, you actually get in underneath the artillery that's shooting at you. Confederates have 45 to 50 pieces of artillery up along the, the crest of Murray's Heights. Um, the chief of artillery, um, E. Porter Alexander, says that when he opens on that field in front of me, a chicken could not live on it because he's got that 
the uh, the advanced field so so well covered. But if you get close enough, you get up underneath that artillery because your tourists have to depress their barrels so far that their ammunition literally rolls right back out. Gravity works against you. You can't depress their barrels enough to shoot at you if you can get close enough. So there again is another reason for the Union High Command to think like, oh, you know, this isn't complete folly. Um, but of course, things really unravel as literally on the ground as the guys start their advance. Um, the ground so, is slippery. You know, they yeah. had snowed earlier in the week. So all of that snow had melted. It had turned the field to mud. And these are guys that are wearing, you know, slick-soled shoes. So they've got no traction. They're going up to mud. So the ground is working against them as they go. So as they, they go up, uh, still there's this action on the, the, the left flank where the main attack was supposed to go in. Uh, how close did that come to actually breaking through and, and, and making this into a Union victory? That's the amazing thing. It does break through, but because Franklin is unsure about his orders, he doesn't send reinforcements in to exploit the breakthrough. Um, George Gordon Heath has this marvelous break. His men... His men bust through the line, make it all the way to down to the to the position of Prospect Hill. Meade calls back for reinforcements, nearly apoplectic with frustration. And first, his courier goes to John Reynolds, because John Reynolds is from a different corps than Meade's at at the time. Reynolds doesn't feel like he has the authority to send reinforcements in, and, and Meade can't get anyone to send in help. And Franklin's like, yeah, well, I don't know, that's so long. Jackson down there, my orders are unclear, and, and he won't send Meade help. So Meade's men eventually get pushed away. Uh, Meade does have some support from uh, uh, from Gibbon, and Gibbon's men also get chewed up out in that field because they don't have any help either. And so here's this marvelous breakthrough. Burnside achieves what he wants to achieve, and then, because of poor command decisions on the field, his men are repulsed. And then Franklin doesn't tell Burnside that the attack's been called off. And when Burnside finally finds out, he's like, what are you doing? Resume the attack. Attack over. And Franklin says, oh, okay, I'll see what I can do. And then does nothing and doesn't tell Burnside. So Burnside launches all these attacks against the stone wall, supporting this main attack at the south end of the field that's not happening. Well, it, it's really breathtaking. And uh, I guess anybody who's worked in a large organization can tell stories where the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, but... Uh, here we see a vivid example of it, and one that costs uh, a lot of good soldiers their lives, unfortunately. Well, we're going to take another short break, come back and talk about the conclusion of this battle, and also uh, a little bit about the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. I want to touch on that uh, before we go. Our guest today is Chris Mikowski. He's co-author of Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, December 16, 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Chris Mikowski. He's the co-author, along with Christopher D. White, of Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, December 13, 1862, which we've been talking about. And the two have also written Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, The Battles of Second Fredericksburg and Salem Church, May 3rd, 1863. And I want to touch a little bit on that. And yet another book by the two of you, uh, maybe we'll have time to say a word about that. Uh, but we talked in our second segment about the Battle of Fredericksburg, the unsuccessful attempt by the Union Army to break through on the left end of the battlefield, the southern end, uh, while Burnside sends his troops at the northern end of the battlefield up the hill toward the sunken road and the stone wall where they were uh, mowed down in in rows. Uh, One of the stories that everybody uh, has heard about the battlefield is the in, in the aftermath, all the Union soldiers lying dead and many of them desperately wounded outside the stone wall, none of them ever actually getting up to it. Uh, uh, lying there suffering uh, with their wounds until a a Confederate soldier decided to go help uh, some of the wounded Yankees. Uh, Is that story apocryphal? Did that really happen? What what do we know about that story? Well, the the story centers around uh, Sergeant Richard Kirkman, who was from South Carolina. And as the story goes, he had seen all of this suffering out across the field, and he asked if he could have a flag of truce so that they could kind of tend to the wounded. And his commander said, no, I don't have the authority to do that. And he said, well, can I just take some stuff out there and ask my guys not to shoot? And his commander says, well, okay, if you want to. So he loads up as many canteens as he can, jumps the wall, and runs out into the open field and uh, starts giving drinks of water to all these wounded Union soldiers. And of course, at first, people don't know what he's doing, so they take pot shots at him, and he manages to avoid all that. And once they see what he's up to, everyone stops and allows him to administer sucker to the wounded. Now, I've heard um, several historians argue that that is apocryphal. That didn't happen. That couldn't have happened. Um, and I tend to let visitors make up their minds about that on their own. Um, I think sometimes as, as historians we maybe get a little too cynical and, and tend to poke holes in stories just for the sake of poking holes in them. Um, 
whether it's true or not, whether it actually happened or not, I think it's a true story. I think it's one of those stories people want to be true. Because in the midst of this tremendous slaughter, it's still possible for humans to show compassion to one another. Um, and so I think that's why that story is so important. Uh, and I think it has a poignancy that keeps reminding us um, just how personal this war was. It wasn't an abstract thing. These are like people just like you and me, Jerry, just like our, our listeners, who are out doing things they don't want to do that, that will keep them up at night and haunt them. Uh, so it's important to know that there's good in the world, too. Uh, so that's kind of, I will challenge my, my, my visitors to the battlefield to think of the story in that term, in those sorts of terms. I, think, I like your your uh, point to maybe whether it happened or not, it can still be a true story in the sense of uh, a conveyance of a historical uh, reality, uh, even if, whether or not the literal events happened as such. Uh, the another uh, memorable moment of of the of that battle was the effort of uh, the young Confederate artilleryman, uh, uh, the the gallant uh, Pelham, John Pelham, uh, defending uh, uh, with with his artillery the Confederate right flank. And what I wanted to ask you about or mention about that is that. There is now a, a marker there. I think the Civil War Trust was actually trying to raise money even this past week to put something else there. Uh, but if visitors go to see it today, uh, and I, I've seen this in, in other books, and there's a photo in yours as well. Uh, well, I'll read the caption of the photo. Uh, the area around the Pelham marker bustles with traffic, so visitors should exercise caution getting in and out of the parking area. And if, if you pull back, uh, is, is there maybe a fast food or a gas station right practically on top of that marker? There's actually an abandoned drugstore that's there now. Uh, and for many yeah. years, that was an undeveloped corner, and so the monument was overgrown and, and just looked terrible. When they put in the drugstore, um, the irony there is here, this piece of development actually contributed to the improvement of that that little corner property. So the marker actually became visible again. They tended it. They took good care of it. So there's a place you can park there now. The drugstore's closed down because there's one that opened up right across the corner. So mm-hmm. <laughs> couldn't support both. Um, so there's a place that the visitors can get there, get out, look at the monument. But, you know, there's a road bordering either side of that property, too. Like, so much of the Fredericksburg battlefield um, has been lost. Um, when you stand at Marie's Heights, um, and look down, once upon a time, it had 900 yards of open space down to the edge of town. And today it's a neighborhood that, that crowds right up within a couple hundred feet of this on the road. Um, so it's really hard to envision what this battlefield looks like. That's why the Civil War Trust's preservation of the Slaughter Pen Farm was so crucial to understanding this battle. I mean, that's where Meade's men made their attack, and Gibbet's men uh, made their attack, and... Uh, you can actually see that part of the battlefield now, thanks to their efforts. So, if you go and and here I'll ask a very self-interested question: If I'm taking a busload of uh, Civil War uh, enthusiasts to Fredericksburg, uh, and I've only got a limited time with them, where where should I take them? 
absolutely go to the visitor center because that's located right next to the sunken road and the stone wall. Um, there's a path that'll go up through the National Cemetery that'll take you into the very crest of Marie's Heights, which is a beautiful view, particularly at this time of year. So that would be the, the must place, the iconic thing to see. But then if you have a little more time, you can actually go downtown where the pontoon bridges were built. Um, both of those sites are still preserved, and you kind of get a sense of what the topography was doing to help that story unfold. And then Water Pen Farm, which is still administered by the Civil War Trust. Um, they're very welcoming of visitors. Um, you can get out there, and um, of the many pieces of ground that I'm privileged to interpret, um, Slaughter Pen is really one of my favorites, because as you cross it, the ground changes, and it unfolds in really surprising ways. Um, and, you know, when you first get there, you just look like, oh, what, wide open field. And it's not a wide open field at all. It's really conscious of the topography as you go. Um, and that caused problems for the Union advances they were trying to push across that field. Now, you and uh, Christopher White have written a, another book on that covers much of the same battlefield, uh, the Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front. Uh, the same ground was fought over uh, a few months later when, in, in May of 1863, when Joe Hooker takes the bulk of the Army of the Potomac across the river, uh, this time on the other side of the city, on the north side. Uh, but they're still fighting in the city. Are there remnants of that? Uh, uh, what can we see of that? Only because the first Fredericksburg battlefield got preserved, are there any remnants of the second? Fredericksburg battlefield. Um, ironically, one of the most iconic photos of Fredericksburg shows Confederate dead and, and detritus in the sunken road. That's actually a picture from Second Fredericksburg, not First Fredericksburg. Uh, people make that mistake though. Um, when the Union Army attacked that position in May of '63, they actually succeeded in breaking through. There's a vicious bayonet fight, and then they swept up onto the, the crest of the heights and captured a whole bunch of artillery from the Washington Artillery. It was the one bright spot in the entire Chancellorsville campaign. I think, um, John Sedgwick's Sixth Corps succeeds at the sunken road where the entire army had failed the year before. Why? Why, why did this one work and the other one didn't? There are a number of different factors. I mean, uh, there are only about 10,000 Confederates that are defending the entire position in Fredericksburg um, in May. Most of the army is back in in Chancellorsville trying to contend with the much, much larger Union army there. Um, once Lee is able to successfully bottle up Joe Hooker, he's able to turn his attention back to the east. Um, John Sedgwick, by that point, has broken through at Fredericksburg, um, starts pushing toward Chancellorsville to come to Hooker's rescue, and he's able to counter by moving forces eastward and blocks Sedgwick at Salem Church. And there... Sedgwick completely gets bottled up, is unsuccessful. On the 4th and 5th, um, Lee's basically hammering away at Sedgwick, trying to crush him. Um, Sedgwick puts up a very stout defense and slips across the river. Hooker will blame many of his failings at Chancellorsville on Sedgwick. But if you think about it, Sedgwick's got one core. It is the largest core in the Army. It's got one core. And Hooker, who got himself into such trouble, is then expecting this one core to bail him out not going to happen. So we have these multi-layered stories at, uh, uh, at Fredericksburg of these two, two battles with different outcomes. Both ultimately are Confederate victories, uh, Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, but uh, what happens at, Chance or at Fredericksburg rather is very different in each one. 
Um, I'll note also for our listeners, the, the books are different, whereas Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, is uh, a book you take with you to the battlefield as well as enjoy in your armchair. Uh, it gives directions for driving, uh, uh, helps you see the battlefield, lists individual stops. Uh, in that sense, it's somewhat like the Army War College battlefield guides, uh, but those are a little more uh, intense and, and dwell more on the primary source, original accounts. This looks to me handier. I'm anxious to take it with me to Fredericksburg uh, on June uh, 13th and uh, have this uh, making me feel as uh, educated as our guest today about the battle when I tell the people on the bus what they're seeing. Uh, and hopefully, Chris, uh, we, we can uh, arrange to meet and, and you can uh, say hello. Uh, the other book, Chancellor's Forgotten Front, uh, also published by Savas Beatty, by the same two authors, Mikowski and White, is more of your traditional uh, academic monograph size, hardcover, and uh, uh, I'll confess, uh, one book a week uh, tests my uh, <laughs> endurance, and I did not fully read this one, but it's on my shelf of ones to look forward to over the summer, during the summer break. But before we go, I want to say that uh, your publisher sent me a third book, which makes me think you don't actually have a day job, but do nothing but write these. Um, uh, also by Chris Mikowski and Christopher D. White, called The Last Days of Stonewall Jackson. The subtitle is The Mortal Wounding of the Confederacy's Greatest Icon. Uh, what intrigues me about this, first of all, is that your publisher has another book on the same topic, uh, Calamity at Chancellorsville, The Wounding and Death of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson by Matthew Lively. Mm-hmm. Have you read Lively's book, or has he read I your have. book? Yep, uh, and, and, and Matt and I are friends and a good guy, and he's got some interesting um, uh, things that he puts forward in his book. Um, the thing that I'm most concerned about uh, is for people to read both and make up their own minds, honestly. And that sounds like a, a sort of a cheesy way out. But um, for me, particularly as a college professor, my whole intent is to provoke critical thinking. Um, if I tell a student what to think, um, I think I'm doing them a disservice. Um, I will say that the last days of Stonewall Jackson, um, again, that emphasis on story is really, really important to us. And we rely on Bob Crick's interpretation, you know, as, as interpreters at the park here. Um, that's sort of how we were taught the story, and so that's just um, to write that story. That's the approach that we took. So it's sort of the official park service line, and it's, um, I would dare say, Bob Crick has vetted that information in the sources. Um, I'm not going to contest Bob Crick at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think Matt is is bold in making some challenges to that, and that's why I would definitely invite people to take a look about those books. Um, <laughs> but the, the last days of Stonewall Jackson and Simply Murder are actually part of a series that we've um, established with Savage Beatty called the Emergent Civil War Series. And uh, you actually should be getting a third book in that series any day now um, uh, called Season of Slaughter, which is about the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. Um, these books are intended as reader-friendly, geez, I want to know something about the battle, and I've got a couple couple hours to read. You pick up one of these volumes and get a good overview of the story with a real focus on story and storytelling. Um, lots of pictures, lots of good maps. And then there's actually suggested reading in the back. Like, if you want to know more about this, here are the books that you should go take a look at. Um, so it's really intended to be sort of an introductory level uh, reading for people who are just getting into the battle. 
And and as I say, it serves my purposes ideally as someone going to the battlefield, especially to show others. Uh, if if you're making a driving tour, listeners through Northern Virginia, and you're going anywhere near uh, Fredericksburg or Spotsylvania, here are a couple books that you will will definitely want to look at. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by the the. The, the two books on Stonewall Jackson, I'll add, I had a student in my uh, Civil War undergraduate class this past year, last fall, uh, and I asked my students every semester, bring me, uh, uh, bring to class your piece of the Civil War, whether it's a physical artifact or a family story. And everywhere I've taught, uh, north or south, almost everyone has some connection to the war. They may not realize it, but when they look for it, they find it. And this year, one student came and had uh, a family tradition that his great, great, so many greats uh, grandfather had killed Stonewall Jackson. Uh, he'd been a Confederate officer. He was in uh, the regiment. Was it uh, the, the 26th North Carolina? I'm, I'm thinking of. I'm sorry. Uh, that's right. And 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 he uh, he was convinced after the war that he had fired the fatal shot. Of course, there was no way of knowing. Uh, but it was quite interesting to have someone in the room who, uh, whose family believed that uh, he was related to, to this incident directly. And the fact that two books can come out about it in, in short uh, order shows that we're still fascinated by that event, uh, as well as many other human moments at uh, Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville or any of these places, uh, like, like uh, Richard Kirkland's story that you told us. And that's, well, that's how I, I got invested too. It's like it's very human stories, Jerry, and I think you're absolutely right when you talk about that. Well, it, it has been a, a pleasure talking with you about these. I'm excited to go to the battlefield back again with your book in hand. Uh, I'm looking forward to having uh, Christopher White on the show in the fall season. I hope to get that scheduled soon and, and talk more about the work the two of you are doing. Uh, it has been a, a real pleasure talking uh, with you today and, and glad you could join us. Thank you so much, Jerry. It's really been my privilege. Good luck. Thank you. And listeners, uh, you'll want to get a copy of Simply Murder. It's a a great introduction to the battle uh, and a great tour guide as well. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management